Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Let's begin with a word of prayer and see if we can get our minds off all the stuff of life and see if we can just think about the things of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the group of people that you have gathered here. Thank you for the way that you have knit our hearts together with love and humor and a common love and adoration for you and your word. That's a very special and a rare thing, and I'm just very grateful that you've done it. You have collected us from all over the place, indeed, all over the world. And through your providence at this moment, here we all are in a room together. So thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that you will look in on the folks who aren't able to be here with us the people that we love, the people that love us, and that you would return the ones that are sick back to health, that you would protect the ones that are traveling and get them back home safely so that we can have the joy of their presence again. May all the things that we do here this evening be pleasing in your sight, and we pray that you will illumine your word to us yet again. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. There are only a couple of chapters left, 12 chapters altogether in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes next week. And then it is my plan to go on from there to the book of Proverbs so that we have looked at the wisdom literature in the historic sequence that they were set up in. I'm really only planning to look at chapter 10 tonight and then touch the early part of chapter 11. I don't ever get to practice anything. It's something that I've told Janine, you know, I I never get a practice shot at any of these sermons. So I never know how long any particular sermon is going to take. And I always set goals that I hope to get to this point. And I very seldom ever get to those points or reach my goals. But it is my plan to go through chapter 10 tonight and just touch chapter 11. And if that means that tonight is a little shorter than normal, then so be it. Have you so far enjoyed the book of Ecclesiastes? Yes. Because growing up in the church as I did, even though there was an occasional quote from the book of Ecclesiastes... Uh, There was no systematic teaching from it, and I've just really enjoyed, whether you have or not, I have really enjoyed revisiting the book all the way through and having to read every verse and, and talk about what's in here, and I have found the lessons of this book to be reaffirming yet again, because the basic lessons are be content with what you have, be thankful for what you've got. Be grateful for what God has given you, and don't spend too much time trying to figure everything out because there's just stuff you simply cannot know. In fact, the book ends in chapter 12, verse 13, with Solomon writing the conclusion when all has been heard. In other words, after he summed it all up, everything he's looked at, this is his conclusion. Fear God, keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. So that's really the conclusion of the book. And I think it's important for us to remember that conclusion, especially when we get into places like chapter 10, where it seems very proverbial. And some of these proverbs may or may not directly apply to us. He's writing from the perspective of being the king the same way that we saw last week. But he's also engaging in a bit of uh, creative writing here. 
We don't see it as much in the English, but I'm going to try to emphasize it tonight. We've seen it a few times so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's really going to come to the fore here in chapter 10, which is that he is writing Hebrew poetry. I don't know how much you know about Hebrew poetry, but it is different than our English poetry. When we write poetry in English, we think in terms of rhyme schemes and things like iambic pentameter. Wow, I just went back to my college days with that one. But Hebrew poetry is wordplay. And the way that Hebrew poetry works is that it says the same thing two different ways, oftentimes by contrasting two things, even though the two things, though they stand in contrast with each other, both say essentially the same thing. They're driving to the same conclusion. So sometimes it's by comparison, this is like that. Sometimes it's by contrast, this is not like that. In fact, at the end of chapter 9, starting at verse 17, you see him starting to create these contrasts. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So it's saying the same thing two different ways. You get the idea that wisdom is better than foolishness, even if the fool who again, Solomon has repeatedly says, one of the ways that you can know a fool is by the things he says, by his constant talking. He's going to bring that up again in chapter 10. He brought it up at the end of chapter 9 here, that a fool constantly shouting and talking isn't any better than the words of a wise person said quietly. Or verse 18, which says, Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. There's a contrast there, but the contrast is telling us that wisdom is a good thing, especially nationally. Wisdom is a good thing, but then it just takes the slightest little thing to throw everything off kilter. If I was to say to you, here's a jet plane, you're getting ready to get on an aircraft, an airliner, and I say, this is the latest, greatest jet. You're going to love this jet. It is comfortable. It is well-constructed. You're going to love this jet. Oh, however, I did overhear one of the engineers saying that one of the small bolts that holds the engine onto the wing has been rattling lately, and it might come off. All of a sudden, your opinion of the great jet changes. And why did your opinion of the great jet change? Because of one little thing, one little bolt. If I said to you, would you like a steak? You'd say, well, sure. And then if I said, great, I cooked it with just the slightest little bit of arsenic. And so you're, you're going to enjoy it. Suddenly you're thinking, I don't need to eat at Jim's house. I can eat elsewhere. Because of just the least little thing that can ruin great kingdoms. And Solomon certainly dealt with that. So wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner, one small thing can destroy all the good that you're working toward. So get that idea of how Solomon is constructing his notions now. He's doing it, like I said, proverbially, but he's also doing it in this Hebrew poetry fashion, and he's comparing and contrasting various different things in order to drive home the point. For instance, after he has said that one little thing can destroy much good, he gives an example starting at chapter 10, verse 1. This is another reason I don't like the big 10 right there, because it gives you the idea that these two things are divided. But they're not, because the first thing he writes in chapter 10 is, dead flies makes a perfumer's oil stink. Okay, what is a perfumer's oil? Somebody who is making oils, making spices, the things that they would wear to make themselves smell good. And yet, one little tiny insect who just happened to get into the potion, who happened to die in the potion, can make the whole thing smell bad. 
And so what's his point? It's the same point that he made at the end of chapter 9, which is even though things can be great and grand and large, one little thing can wreck it. One sinner can destroy a whole war, can turn the tide of a whole war. And he just gave you that example, if you remember, at the end of chapter 9, when he gave the story of one poor wise man who delivered a whole city. So if one person can turn the tide, one person's wisdom can turn the tide and the history of a whole city, then one sinner's foolishness can also turn the tide for the whole city. Because one dead fly makes a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. So in so many ways, being a king, he knows what it is to bestow honor on people. He knows what it is to give people power, credibility, riches. He knows what it is to lift somebody up. He's even going to make reference to that in a little bit. He knows what it is to lift somebody up to a level of recognition and achievement. And yet, one little foolishness is weightier than all that. One little foolishness can destroy it. This is a concept that you find all the way through Solomon's writing, the idea that small foxes spoil a vine. Just little things can wreck the big things. And so he is saying, don't be foolish. (laughs) And don't allow foolishness to destroy the big plans. It's going to take wisdom to make sure that the foolishness of people doesn't overturn all your big plans because he says in verse 2 a wise man's heart directs him toward the right okay now the idea of right is on the right hand and that idea in the Middle East 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago was the place of honor which is why we read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God that's the place of honor and authority the same way the king would place people he wanted to honor at his right hand Jesus talks about the separating of the sheep and the goats and he puts the sheep on his right hand puts the goats on his left hand That concept of the right being the honorable place and the left being the dishonorable place even entered the Latin language where the word for left is also the word for sinister. And so that right hand good, left hand bad idea is really playing out not only in Solomon's writing but even entered common language. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, toward the place of honor. But the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left, the place of dishonor. So again, wisdom gets you recognition, gets you honor, especially within a kingdom. And a person who's a fool is naturally going to be demoted. So with all of that in mind, he's going to talk about how you should react when the king puts you to the right hand or to the left hand. Even when a fool walks, verse 3, even when a fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. Okay, now it's not too difficult to make the equation here. Rather than walking along the road, I could just insert social media right here. Because basically what Solomon's saying is, look, a fool is a fool is a fool. And all he has to do is walk down the road and everybody who meets him is going to know he's a fool. Because of the way he talks, because of the things he does. In fact, in a few minutes, he's going to say that a fool doesn't even know how to find the city. We use phraseology even today where we say, Somebody doesn't know enough to come in out of the rain. Well, it's that same idea. Somebody's so foolish, so empty-headed, that they don't even know how to find the city. The city. The city's right there, and he doesn't know how to find it. So when a fool walks down the road, because his sense is lacking, because he has no common sense, everybody he interacts with, everybody he talks with, 
recognizes that he's just a fool. He doesn't know anything. So those four verses kind of go together. Let's read them together. First, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. He's not talking about insects. He doesn't care about insects. He's not even talking about perfumers. He's talking about that one sinner who can destroy all the good work. So a little foolishness is heavier, is weightier, is more substantive than wisdom and honor. Wisdom and honor can be undone by somebody's foolishness. A wise man's heart directs him to the right, to the place of honor. But a foolish man's heart directs him toward the left, to the place of shame and dishonor. And even when a fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking. He has no common sense, no good sense. And he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. So, verse 4. If a ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Okay, the only way to understand this is to look at his position as king. Because he is a ruler, because he is the king, he oftentimes deals with his generals and with the people that are in charge of his kingdom. And obviously, he's saying, every once in a while, my temper flares. Every once in a while, I hear that someone has been foolish. Every once in a while, I'm making my big plans. Everything's going great. And then some fool has goofed it up. And then my temper is going to flare about it. But notice what he says. Don't abandon your position. Maintain your composure. Because your composure will allay your great offenses. So what he's saying is, if you've been foolish... And then the king calls you down for it. The wrong thing to do is to yell back. The wrong thing to do is to get angry. The wrong thing to do is to make excuses. No, I didn't do it. No, really. No, he said, maintain your composure. Take the hit. Recognize that you're at fault. Admit you're at fault. And then he says, that kind of composure is going to allay many offenses. Now, you know that that's true. You know that if you are in charge of some project and somebody messes up the project and you go and you correct them to their face, what would you rather have them do? I even taught this to my children after I corrected them that they were supposed to say, I see it, I understand it, I apologize, won't happen again. Keep your composure. The wrong thing to do is, I hate you, Dad, and why would you say that? And you're not right, and I'm right, and I can do whatever I want. How dare you? And how you? Well, that just makes me angrier. That just makes me want to correct you more. But if you can keep your composure and admit your mistake, he says, that allays offenses. What are you going to end up getting for it? Forgiveness. At some point, the person who's yelling at you is going to go, all right, all right. Well, you owned it. Okay, we're going to fix it. Don't worry. You're going to get by with it. Well, Solomon says that's been true forever about human beings and their interactions. If somebody, especially a superior to you, especially a king, a ruler, if his temper rises against you, don't abandon your position. Don't say, how dare you say that to me because you're completely wrong. And I don't, don't abandon your position. Instead, demonstrate to him that you have good composure. And what's he likely to do? He's likely then to put you in charge of other things because you have a good temperament. You got it? Yes, sir. That's true today, isn't it? Yes. It's funny how current, how contemporary that kind of instruction is. If a ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Now, I think the next couple of verses are still part of that thinking because he says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. And then he kind of, that word evil, he kind of redefines it by saying, it's like an error that goes forth from a ruler. 
So now that he has said, sometimes it's the person who makes a mistake, and so that raises the ire of the ruler, but sometimes I've seen rulers make mistakes. And he says, and that's, that's an evil when a ruler makes a mistake. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. In other words, I have seen rulers who ought to be wise. I've seen them do silly things. Foolish things. He says, that's, that's just a, an evil. That's an error. Rulers ought to be wise. And as a result, I have seen foolishness sitting in exalted places while rich men, the comparison that he's been making all the way through this book is if you're rich, that probably means you're wise because foolish people lose their money rapidly. So, I have seen foolishness in exalted places, and I've seen wise men sitting in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses, which was an exalted way to travel. And yet I have seen princes, important people, people of birth. I have seen them walking like slaves on the land. So what he's getting at here is that I have seen in this lifetime things that don't necessarily make sense. Remember that this whole section of the book I have defined as what we can't know, what men do not know, and what men cannot figure out. He recognizes that sometimes there are people who were really fools, and yet they end up sitting in exalted places and ruling over people. And he says, that's an evil and I have seen slaves that have ridden on horses. Okay, so think about the book of Esther for a moment. Because Mordecai, who was the cousin to Esther, or was it uncle? Was he uncle to Esther? He was not a wealthy man. He was not an important man. He was not a powerful man. And yet, he revealed to Esther that there was a plot against the king and then the king was told about the plot. And the king ends up being reminded in the middle of the night as he's reading through his annals. He's reminded of all of that. And he says, well, that man was never rewarded. And so he says to Haman, if the king wants... <laughs> yes, yes. Well remembered. Well remembered. Yeah. yeah. So he says to Haman, if the king wanted to honor somebody, what would the king do? He said, oh, put him on a horse and give him your ring and put your robe on him and march him through the street saying, this is how the king honors someone. And he says, okay, do that for Mordecai. Okay, so this is Mordecai, who is essentially a nobody and a nothing, who ends up riding on a horse, who ends up wearing the king's robe, who ends up being exalted. That's the kind of thing that Solomon is referring to. Now, not the Esther story, because that happens later than Solomon, but that's the sort of thing he's referring to, and I think it relates back to verse 4, because he's saying, don't abandon your position, don't abandon your composure, because you never know how it might turn out for you. You never know what good things might come down the road. You never know if you maintain your composure that you won't be the one who ends up riding on a horse someday and being exalted. After all, I'm the king. I can raise up one. I can take down another. And I've seen slaves riding on horses. And I've seen princes that have given me a bad time and lost their composure. And now they're out in the fields. I'm the king. I'm in charge. And then he starts at verse 8 saying, you know, you don't really know what might happen. Sometimes just unfortunate things occur. And he's going to say that a little bit of wisdom might have prevented these things from happening. But you don't really know what's going to happen. Verse 8, he says, he who digs a pit might fall into it. Yeah, that's true. There is a branch right now half a tree in my yard came down in the storm that we had two weeks ago I'm waiting for somebody with a chainsaw to come take care of it and I've gone out and I've looked at it and I thought in my silly little head I thought oh oh I could probably take that down 
I could get up under it and just cut through it like this. And then you know what would happen? Yeah, that tree would fall right on me. So, yeah, I'd be able to get rid of the tree limb, but it would also probably kill me. And so how do I prevent that? Wisdom, thinking it through, thinking what the possibilities are, what's going to happen to me, and then hiring somebody who knows what they're doing to go take that tree down. Well, this is the kind of thing that he's going to give several examples of. He who digs a pit might fall into it. Now, that pit might be dug as a trap, as a snare for somebody else. But the guy who's actually doing the digging might fall into the pit, and there's no way to get out of it. That might happen. Or a serpent might bite him who breaks through a wall. Okay, so again, he's talking from a king's perspective. He's talking from a military perspective. When you went to lay siege to a city, you had to go over the wall or through the wall. And great success was to get through the wall because then everybody from your side could come pouring through the wall and you could overtake a city. So if somebody is trying to defend the king's honor and they make their way through the wall, they're leading their... They've got the whole army behind them. They are going to be a great success at the after party later if they're the one who busted through the wall. What a great hero. And yet they might bust through the wall and then get bitten by a serpent because you never know what might happen. Verse 9 says, And he who cuts the stones, who quarries the stones, can be hurt by them. The person who's actually cutting stone out, those huge stones might fall on him. Those huge stones might break a limb. So even as you're doing your work, bad things might happen. He who splits logs might be endangered by those logs. Verse 10 tells you how he might be endangered by them. Because if the axe is dull... And he does not sharpen the edge of the axe, then he must exert more strength. So what's the point? Be wise. Sharpen your axe before you go and start chopping logs. Before you go in there and try to split the logs, which is going to be very hard with a dull axe, wisdom would be go make sure that the tools you're using are properly ready to work and then you don't have to put as much effort into it. As you put more effort into using an axe, you're more likely to hurt yourself. So here are the things that could happen. He that digs a pit might fall into it. A serpent might bite him that breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones might be hurt by them. He who splits logs may be endangered by them. And if an axe is dull, he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. So the point of all of those examples is summed up in the end of verse 10 with the phrase, wisdom has the advantage of giving success. So you're much more likely to be successful in your ventures if you think first. Most accidents that happen are preventable accidents. There are very, very few genuine accidents in the world. Have you ever been like in a car accident? And have you ever thought back afterwards, oh, if I had just, oh, I know, oh, I get it now. If I had just not done this or had done that or had looked a second time or had signaled the right way, or I, there's always some mitigating factor that you can think through where if you had just been a little wiser, been paying more attention, took your time a little bit more, that thing would have been prevented. Well, that's what Solomon is getting at here, that a lot of mistakes can be prevented rather than foolishness presiding, rather than foolishness destroying large projects rather than dead flies making the perfume stink. If you had just thought first, if you had just been wise in the first place, if you had just sharpened the axe to begin with, then those things wouldn't have occurred. And that seems to be what he's driving at in that first part of chapter 10. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. And then this very strange phrase, if a serpent bites, 
before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. I've really thought about that the last few days because I don't think he's really just talking about snake charmers. I mean, yes, that's essentially true. If you've got a snake charmer and he's got a snake in a basket and he takes the lid off the basket and does his little charming thing and then the snake bites him before the snake is charmed, well, then there's no direct profit to the charmer. He ended up getting bitten by a snake. Okay, that's just axiomatically true. So I've been thinking, what is Solomon really, really getting at? And I think it's still part of his larger notion that well-thought-out, well-built plans can be destroyed by the smallest things. So that if a king was to plan some, let's say, some great invasion of a city, and everything seems like it's going well, but then there's one fool in the bunch, one person who doesn't know that loose lips sink ships, One person who doesn't know that it's best to just keep the confidences of the king, well, then he might say the wrong thing to somebody else. The enemy may be aware that the king is coming. The whole plan may be upended because of one little fly in the ointment, which is, by the way, where we get that phrase, that one stinking dead fly can ruin a whole ointment. One fly in the ointment can destroy great plans, and I think he is making that analogous to the idea of a serpent biting the charmer before the charmer has the snake under its control. So that a whole conquering plan, a whole war plan that's laid out by the king and his generals can be undermined quite easily by one person who's just foolish. Does that make sense? Because I really don't think he's just paying attention to snake charmers. So how are you going to tell a fool? How can you tell a fool from a smart person? Well, Solomon's been telling you all the way through this book. What is the key way that you can determine if somebody's wise or foolish? What is the chief characteristic of a foolish person? Many words. Many words. Lots of talking. Just talking all the time without thinking about what they're saying. He's going to go back to that again. So he keeps bringing this up over and over again. It's obviously a point that Solomon wants to drive home, that fools have a hard time keeping their mouth shut. Haven't you found that to be true in your own life? (laughs) That foolish people have a hard time just being quiet, just shut up. They, They keep having to argue their point and argue their case and tell you how right they are and how wrong you are. These days, they just all type in caps. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious words. That's true. A wise person knows how to look into a situation and find words that are appropriate to the situation. A wise person knows whether those words need to be empathetic at this moment, whether they need to be instructive at this moment, whether they need to be encouraging at this moment. So a wise person is going to speak from a gracious attitude. What he means is he's going to speak to you in a way that is appropriate for the relationship between the two of you. Gracious words. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. There's one of those poetic contrasts we've been talking about. He's saying the same thing two different ways, which is that wisdom speaks graciously. Foolishness won't shut up. Have you ever been around somebody, talking to somebody, who the the whole time they're talking, all you're thinking in your brain is, oh, please shut up. Oh, oh, please back up. Please, Please stop talking. Why are they doing that? Why why aren't they picking up social cues? Why aren't they picking up that you don't want to hear them anymore? According to Solomon, they're not paying attention. They're not being gracious. They're not considering you in the conversation because they're foolish. And I have dealt with plenty of those folks through my life. Words from the mouth of a wise man 
are gracious words, while the lips of a fool consume him. He's eaten up with words and talking and himself and more of me. And here's my ideas and here's my opinion and you're wrong. And you're, and after a while, it's just overwhelming. It consumes him. He can't stop talking. And the beginning of his talking is foolishness, folly. And the end of his talking is wicked madness. So where's the good part in all that? Solomon doesn't see any good part. He says if they start talking foolishly, you sit there and listen to them talking their foolishness, before they're done, you're just going to get wickedness and madness from them. Why? Because they're fools. They're not wise. They're not telling you things that are beneficial for you, that are instructive for you. They're not demonstrating some kind of wisdom or revelatory knowledge to you. They're just talking, talking, talking. And it becomes wicked madness from beginning to end, from folly to wicked madness. And yet, verse 14, and yet the fool keeps talking. Yet the fool multiplies his words. But nobody knows what will happen. And who can tell him what will come after him? The idea being, since you don't really know, and how often have we seen Solomon say this now? You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's coming. It could be happenstance. It could be part of your work. Nobody knows the future. Nobody knows what day they're going to die. And because you don't know that stuff, the implication is, shut up. Since you don't know that stuff, don't talk about stuff you don't know. Because all human beings are limited in what they can actually know. And so don't be talking like you know stuff you just don't know. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is foolishness, folly, and the end of it, the conclusion, is wicked madness. And yet, the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen. And who can tell him what will come after him? The toil, the work of a fool so wearies him that he doesn't even know how to go to a city. There's that phrase I mentioned earlier. It's the same as he doesn't even know to come in out of the rain. It's the same idea. He's picking something really, really obvious. How to go into the city. Okay, if you walk up to a walled city, which is usually the case. If you walk up to an area, there's going to be a city and it's going to be encased behind a wall. Which means there's going to be a gate. And that's the way you go in. You go into the city through the gate. And the example that he's giving here is some people are just so stupid, they will walk face first into the wall. And that describes more people than I can explain at this point. I keep using the phrase people who beat their head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. Some things in life are just obvious. And Solomon uses that as an example of the folly, of the foolishness, of some people. They don't even know how to go in to a city. They can't even find the gate. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. So woe to you. Now he's going to talk again from the position of being the king. What's it like when there's a city that ends up with a foolish king? He has already said, I've seen fools exalted. And he says, that's an evil and an error. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a child. The NASB says, whose king is a lad. But the idea is, those of you who have childish kings, kings who are more interested in childishness and their own ways than in actually ruling in wisdom. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a child, a lad, and whose princes, the exalted ones, 
Get up and feast in the morning. Instead of getting up and properly ruling, instead of doing what is right for the populace, they get up and just have parties because they're the rich ones, they're the powerful ones, they're the, they're the ones who get to make the decisions to enrich themselves. And so the princes get up and they feast in the morning, but blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time. And they eat for strength and not for drunkenness. So you've got a group of leaders who get up in the morning and revel in their wealth and in their ability to do whatever they want, who live by the creed, it's good to be king. I don't want to hear from Steve right now. (laughs) Who live by that idea, I can do whatever I want, so I'm going to do whatever I want. And don't care about taking care of the city or taking care of the populace or doing any of the necessary politics. They're not worried about any of that. They're up feasting and getting drunk. Blessed is the land whose king is a noble king who actually thinks through these things in wisdom, whose princes eat at the appropriate time and they eat for the purpose of strength, not for their drunkenness. But on the other hand, those cities, those lands that have childish kings... Through indolence or through laziness, says verse 18, the rafters sag. So what he's doing now is he's making an equation between a kingdom and a house. What happens if you don't regularly tend to the physical structure that you live in? If you don't get up there and patch the roof once in a while... If you don't get up there and put new beams in the ceiling once in a while, after all, the rafters are going to sag and the roof's going to begin to leak. And so he's likening the kingdom of a foolish king to a house that's dilapidating. And the house will dilapidate through their indolence, through their laziness. Through indolence, the rafters sag. Through slackness, through not caring, through not doing the things that need to be done, the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment instead of eating for strength. The proper reason that the king's men would eat, they would eat for strength. But he says in those indolent kingdoms, men make meals for their enjoyment and their wine makes their life merry. So they're drunk all the time. And money is the answer to everything, so they think. I've got money because i got money. Nobody can get to me, so I can do whatever I want. And they don't realize that the whole house is collapsing around them. Furthermore, now this is really interesting. Because even though sometimes there may be indolent, foolish, childish kings, on the other side, Solomon says, but be careful not to curse the king, because that also might come back to hurt you. So wisdom would be, even if you have a foolish king, watch your own mouth, because again, foolishness says stuff. So furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, don't curse a rich man, that's a man of nobility. Because a bird of the heavens, not the heaven where God is, but a bird that flies in the sky is going to carry the sound of the curses you've made and the winged creature will make the matter known. In other words, you never know who's listening. You never know who might carry that story back to the king. The people who were planning to kill the king during the time of Esther and Mordecai, they didn't know they were being overheard. They ended up dead. Their whole enterprise was uprooted because somebody heard it and carried it to the king. It got to the king's ears. And so here in Ecclesiastes, he's saying, yes, a king can be foolish. A king can be indolent. A king can do all the wrong things, but he's the king. And so be careful. Because if you speak against the king, he's still the king. He still has the power to go after you if he hears that you're against him. 
So this is all about wisdom from many different perspectives. It's wisdom from the king's perspective. You need to be a wise king. You need to take care of the things that need to be taken care of. Otherwise, your house is going to dilapidate around you. But even if you are subject to a king, whether a wise king or whether a foolish king, you still have to be careful about what you say. Because you never know who's listening and who's going to find out. That's wisdom. The consistent message across the board so far in all of Ecclesiastes is it's foolish to talk too much because you just never know where those words might go and where that may take you. And it may demonstrate to everybody who sees you walking down the street that you're just a fool. And that takes us to chapter 11. I said we would touch on chapter 11 before the night was over. So let's just do the first couple of verses because I think they're tied to everything we've just been reading. I think he's saying this from the perspective of being a king. And it's a phrase that we've all kind of grown up with. We all kind of know it, the phrase, cast your bread upon the water. And I've heard it misused in so many different ways. But contextually, what Solomon is saying, by the way, that he's been creating these analogies about a house being destroyed and that kind of stuff, he's not literally saying... Go get a loaf of bread and throw it on a lake, and that's somehow good for you. Now, what he's saying is, take, when you have stuff, take the stuff you have, throw it out to the seas, cast it abroad, put it out to other people, because someday things may not be going well for you, and the people you sent those good things to are going to be there to help you. So it's good to cast your good blessings abroad because the people who have received those blessings are going to be a help to you because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what might be coming. And if it goes bad, you're going to need those people. So cast your bread, your food, your good things onto the surface of the seas. Distribute it. Scatter it around. And you will find it after many days. If the days are going by and suddenly you need those people, that's going to come back to you, what you have cast out. So divide your portion, whatever you have, whatever good stuff you have. Divide your portion to seven or even eight ways. By the way, we have a modern euphemism that says don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's the same idea. Distribute. It's even the idea on Wall Street. You want to have lots of different investments so that if one tanks, you got something else to sustain you. And that's what Solomon is saying here. This is a demonstration of a wise way to serve as a king, to divide what is yours seven or eight ways. Why? Because you do not know what misfortune may occur to you on the earth. That's the whole purpose. That's, that's how you get to the meaning of the phrase is because the summation of it is, you don't know what's coming. And again, here is Solomon saying, people don't know because people can't know. And because you can't know, wisdom would be, ensure yourself against what might be coming by making sure that you've made friends with other people by sharing what God has given to you. And that's going to make those people think well of you. They're going to feel indebted to you. And when things go bad for you, you got somebody to call on. Do you see the wisdom of that? Mm -hmm. So I think those first two verses are kind of part of what he's talking about in chapter 10. It's all that perspective from the king and how to be wise and to rule as a king and how to make strategic alliances with other people who will think well of you and your kingdom. So we will stop there. Next week we will pick up right at verse 3 and we will finish the book of Ecclesiastes. Are there any questions about all that? And by the way, isn't that a whole bunch of good advice? Don't you wish you could live like that? Don't you wish you always knew, okay, the wise thing to do here would be sharpen my axe, (laughs) be careful before I go to work, be wise with what I'm doing. If I get called down by a superior, take it, keep my composure because you never know what's coming. There might be advancement waiting for me. 
And I need to be ready to show the person in charge that I'm prepared for that advancement. And then make friends with people while you have stuff. Distribute that stuff. Spread that goodwill. And then speak wise and graciously to people rather than just spilling out your silly ideas that will prove what a fool you are. People aren't going to follow you if you demonstrate constantly by your many words that you're foolish. If you got on an airplane, the jet airplane that I talked about earlier, and the pilot got on, clicked on the microphone and said, this is your captain speaking, Captain Rogers, I just gave him a name. I've never done this before, but I feel pretty confident that I can probably fly this plane. Are you feeling good about that? No, what you want to hear is, this is Captain Rogers. I've got about three, 400 flights on this particular airplane under my belt. We're going to have a smooth ride. You're going to be there in three hours. Sit back, relax, take a nap. Here come the peanuts. That's what you want to hear. You want to hear confidence. You want to hear ability. You want to hear wisdom. I know what I'm doing. I remember hearing a fellow say years ago that the last thing you want to hear in the surgery when you're laying on the table just before you fall asleep under the anesthesia, the last thing you want to hear is the doctor go, oops. <laughs> you don't want that. No, you want capability. You want wisdom. And those are the kind of people that you follow. Those are the kind of people that you feel confident in. Those are the kind of people that you're happy to have as friends because you know you can count on them when the going gets rough. And nobody knows what's coming and life might get rough, you're going to need friends. So make sure that you make those friends while you can. Make sense? Yes. Yeah. And don't ever fly with Captain Rogers. That's, that's my... Never mind. Questions? Comments? Anything? We're good? Well, then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.